The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being resyndicated here by io9. John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode three of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be talking about killer robots and uh, robot uprisings and the intersection between video games and war. And we have a, just a fantastic guest with us today, P.W. Singer, uh, author of the book Wired for War. So we'll get to his interview in just a little bit, and then uh, stick around after the interview where John and I will be talking about some of the science fiction ideas that, that led to some of these uh, new inventions. Okay, so Peter Warren Singer is Senior Fellow and Director of the 21st Century Defense Initiative at the Brookings Institution. He is the youngest scholar named Senior Fellow in Brookings's 90-year history. He has provided commentary on military affairs for nearly every major TV and radio outlet, including ABC Nightline, Al Jazeera, BBC, CBS, 60 Minutes, CNN, Fox, NPR, The NBC Today Show, and The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. Uh, his first book, Corporate Warriors, The Rise of the Privatized Military Industry, pioneered the study of the new industry of private companies providing military services for hire. His next book, Children at War, explored the rise of another new force in modern warfare, child soldier groups. And his most recent book, Wired for War, looks at the implications of robotics and other new technologies for war, politics, ethics, and law in the 21st century. I like the way you added uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> to his bio. I'm sure he's going to add that himself once uh, <laughs> the show airs. No, no, that's, um, that's straight out of his bio, I, I swear. All right, well, let's get uh, PW on the phone. Hello, Pete Singer. Uh, hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Okay, so first of all, uh, could you just give us a brief overview of what types of war robots are in use right now? Basically, any place that humans fight, um, we're using military robotics there. Uh, so in the air, uh, a lot of people are familiar with the Predator drone, of course. Basically, a small plane, 48 feet long, that um, started out doing surveillance and now is being used for missile strikes. But we're seeing the size extremes go into wide different directions in the air. For example, there's one that's being built that will carry a radar the length of a football field. And besides being big, it's going to be able to stay in the air, not just for hours, not just for days, but literally for months or years. At the other end of the size spectrum, um, there's micro-robotics. Uh, I was at one Air Force lab, and I saw one that could fit on the tip of a pen. Um, and so where you have headed here is the concept of bugs with bugs, that is, insect size, but carrying you know, James Bond-like surveillance devices. On the ground, we have everything from the PackBot, which is made by the iRobot company, um, you know, named after the Isaac Asimov novels. It's a real-world company, and the PackBot is a lawnmower-sized robot that, for example, is used to defuse these roadside bombs. Uh, Foster Miller makes a robot called the Swords, and its replacement is called the Mars, and those are basically ground robotics that have been armed with machine guns. There's uh, Rex and Rev, which um, are a little bit like robotic versions of Kanga and Rue in the Winnie the Pooh stories. Hmm. It's a large robot that carries a small robot, and except they're used to uh, in a medic role. Basically, uh, one pops out and is to drive up and find the wounded soldier and then pull him away from danger, pop him into the other one, and then he'll be cared for within the larger robotic system. The inspiration for that was in um, Starship Troopers. There's the crash pods at sea. You have UUVs, which are unmanned undersea uh, robotics. Uh, Remus, for example, is a little robotic sub that hunts down explosive mines. There's Robo Lobster that of course, as a robotic lobster, <laughs> and it basically um, creeps up onto an enemy shore, pops out of the surf, and you know checks out for what's going on there. And then you've got things like Spartan Scout, 
basically a robotic motorboat that's used for things like sentry duty. A couple of years ago in the Persian Gulf, Arab fishermen were surprised when a boat would drive up to them. There were no people in it, told that the boat's carrying a machine gun pointed at us, and there's a voice in it that's speaking Arabic to us and telling us to stop and um, let us scan what's happening in you. There's two new domains that we're starting to fight in, outer space and cyberspace. Of course, um, these are becoming unmanned as well, just by the sheer nature of the domain. Cyber warfare, is, it happens in literally nanoseconds. Humans can't react, so we're using the AI bots, et cetera, in that space. And then outer space, well, it's just not all that efficient to put humans up in there, certainly in terms of conflict. It's also very expensive. For example, using the, the space shuttle, it costs about $9,000 per pound to launch someone. So to put a human up in all the air and food and everything for them just isn't efficient. The title of the book, Wired for War, is a little bit of a play uh, on words. It's not just the machines that are wired for war, but I think it's really us as humans. Uh, when you look throughout human history, we have this incredible bent towards creation, and now we're creating this incredible technology. And you know, if you believe both the scientists that I met with, but also the science fiction folks that I met with for the book, both of them think that we're probably creating an entirely new species. But if we're honest about it, the reason that we're doing it is because we can't get past that age-old human need to destroy one another. And that's really been a drive uh, towards invention throughout all of man's history. So some people argue that because of the dangers of all the things that come out of robotics, all the hard questions that it asks, and of course, you know, the ultimate kind of science fiction-like danger that some people worry about, you know, that one day they'll, they'll truly take over. But the point is, is that there's some people who say, you know, the parallel right now is um, the invention of the atomic bomb. Uh, I remember some of the scientists saying that and saying, you know, we don't want to make the same mistake that the physicists made back in the 1940s. Right after they invented the atomic bomb, most of those very same scientists later founded the arms control movement to ban it. And they say, we don't want to make that same mistake, so we should stop this. And the answer that I give to that is it'd be great if we wanted to stop it. But first, we have to stop war, science, and capitalism. So, yeah, if you can you know, stop all of those three trends, then, yeah, we won't use robots. So how do soldiers feel about fighting alongside robots? Some people will describe how, you know, I'm literally alive today because of this robot. Uh, the book opens with the scene of um, the first robot that was killed in action, so to speak. And the unit that was operating that robot actually sent a condolence letter back to the U.S. apologizing to the manufacturer for not being able to bring it home. Um, they were heartbroken over the loss. But then in the condolence letter, the commander added that, he was glad that he didn't have to write this letter to someone's mother. Because these machines are saving lives and going out in combat with folks, there's um, relationships building between them. And again, this is, you know, with things without much of a personality. But one of the examples in the book is a robot is destroyed by a roadside bomb. And the soldier takes the robot into, they call it the robot hospital, but it's really just a repair yard. But notice that phrasing hospital. And he has tears in his eyes, and the mechanics take one look at it, and they're like, you know, buddy, it's blown up. We, we can't fix it, but don't worry. We can get you another robot to replace it. And he says, I don't want another robot. I want Scooby-Doo fixed. There's the opposite side to this, though, is that um, for some people, you know, these technologies are challenging to their roles, to their status. So there's a lot of consternation, for example, within the Air Force over some of the roles that our robotics are taking over from what used to be the elite of the field, the pilot. Well, now you've got people flying these things. Like one of the examples in the book is an um, 18-year-old high school dropout who's basically one of the top pilots of unmanned systems. That's not something that current pilots like to hear. So how do the combat troops on the ground feel about the drone pilots who are operating from back in the safety of the home country? There's always been tensions between 
the you know ground pounders and and the fly boys you know during world war ii the guys living in the foxholes and saying you know the pilots above us they fly back to england and they can have a beer at night and and go out on a date that's not fair Hmm. that's always been there what happens now is that it takes this trend almost to kind of its logical extreme a special ops guy was talking to me about he was on a raid in Afghanistan. His unit was on a raid in Afghanistan. And they had an um, unmanned system flying above them in the air uh, doing surveillance for them. And then it got pulled out because of a weather call. And two years later, he was still like almost spitting mad about it. He said, you know, it was a bogus weather call. It was, it was you know, I looked up and the weather was clear. It was probably because the operator had to take his kid to some soccer practice. Now, hmm. that's not the reality of why it probably happened. When you meet the operators, you know they take their jobs totally seriously. He would have had a different view if it was a pilot. During World War II, the guys on the ground, they may have been jealous of the pilots who could fly from England, but they knew that when they were overhead, they were risking themselves just like they were on the ground. This is one of the the challenges that this whole endeavor brings uh, to light is that it's not just the tensions that build between units, but also the new challenges of leadership. And that's one of the predator squadron commanders put it to me is that, you know, it's very different from leading a man squadron. And one of the things you have to do is make sure that your unit, even though they're, for example, sitting in Nevada, you want to make sure that they're intimately connected to what's happening in the field and that those in the field feel that way. So, for example, making sure that your pilots are getting out there to meet the people that they're supporting and vice versa. So they'll, for example, fly back the units on the ground, they'll fly back soldiers from them to be able to meet the Predator drone pilots so they can exchange information. Also know that there's two humans on both ends. Did the drone pilots get Medals of Valor and things like that? Originally, they did not. Um, they, they didn't get, you know, medals of valor because no one considered what they were doing uh, as, as meriting that. And in fact, they weren't even getting service medals, that is, whether they were fighting in these conflicts or not. And the, this was a huge issue for the pilots in these units because if you don't get these commendations, then you won't advance in your careers. And um, just a few years ago, it was considered you know, almost a career killer to be sent to one of these units. Um, one of the people in the book was a F-15 pilot, a fighter plane pilot, and he gets promoted. He gets promoted to squadron command, except it's squadron command of a predator unit. And so his buddies in the F-15 unit, instead of being like, wow, you got promoted, you know, let's all go out and celebrate, they feel sorry for him. You know, they apologize for what happened to him. Well, his, he tells in the next two years, his unit, even though it's not seen as glamorous, is actually engaged in more combat than any other unit in the U.S. Air Force. And so the Air Force has figured out over the last year that if this is the future, they better figure out how to maintain and promote this group. And so they've um, changed the, the award structures. And so that is changing. But um, what you're getting at is, you know, something that that's uh, explored in a lot of science fiction. I'm thinking of uh, things like um, uh, the Forever War uh, or, or um, Old Man's War, or the like, is that technology has an effect on demographics. Um, Ender's Game would be another example of this. That is, who can do what in war is changed by technology. And that's true whether we were talking about, you know, the peasants who at one point did nothing in war and then someone figured out, hold it, if we arm them with longbows and pikes, they'll be able to defeat the knights who were the noblemen. And that's the same thing in, you know, Ender's Game. It's, wow, a kid, just because he's good at video games, may be a player in this new kind of war that we have. One of the folks in the book, um, he's a U.S. Air Force guy. He sort of half-jokingly says, you know, look, the physical attributes that you need to do this job, it's not to be able to do 100 push-ups. It's to have a big butt and a strong bladder. And what he means is literally be able to sit for long periods of time operating this. Uh, so in Ender's Game, it, it, it very much is uh, akin to playing a video game, what Ender does, and in, in controlling the army. Uh, and piloting a drone kind of seems like playing a video game at least to the layperson, is that true at all? Or is there, what, what is the relationship between uh, games and uh, war these days? 
to be very clear that the operators of those systems like at Creech Air Force Base the like, you know, they don't view it as just merely a video game. I mean, they take their jobs seriously. In fact, they may be taking their jobs in a certain way almost too seriously. One of the odd things that we've discovered is that the rates of combat stress among these remote warriors are in some cases as high or even higher than among units that are physically in Iraq and Afghanistan. That is, that they, they are truly taking this to heart. But so that, that's the first part I want to make clear. But the second part is, is you're exactly right. There's this um, strong tie between the video game industry and the military that's growing even stronger. That's on one hand. Uh, video games, of course, are, are drawing more and more from the military for their scenarios. Um, you know, the success of Call of Duty: Modern Warfare 2. I mean, it's you know basically the biggest video game ever, and it's all set in a contemporary conflict zone using contemporary weapons. But the inverse is across the entire chain of the military, we're using video game technology more and more. So you have a game like America's Army, that is a game, but it's a game that was research and developed by the U.S. military because it's used as recruiting. And then once that individual joins, they'll use video game technology for everything from training up on how to operate their packbot, where the controllers are um, basically look a lot like uh, um, PlayStation controllers, to there's video gaming used for how do you deal with PTSD after the fight. The worry here with this kind of cross between military and entertainment, what some people call militainment, is that it grows a little fuzzy. One soldier said, you know, his worry was uh, what they called avatar fatigue. There's a difference between playing with avatars and then you lose someone and then you just reboot the game versus when you actually lose a soldier, you have to write the letter home to that person's mother. And that if you get a generation that grew up thinking the first way, they may not be well equipped to deal with the reality. So will we go from these remote controlled warbots to autonomous warbots? Or another way of asking that is, you know, when should we all buy our robot attack insurance? Um, hmm. I'm someone who loves science fiction, but I'm the security analyst. So how would someone who comes from the background that I have take the scenarios and weigh whether they're real or not? That is, what are the preconditions for you know, a Terminator-like rise of the machines or the Matrix or, or whatever? What are the things that need to happen? The, the machines uh, have to be you know, super intelligent. You know, they get to what they call strong AI, self-aware. But then also, it's not just that they're self-aware. They have to have some kind of either will to power or um, sense of self to protect. You know, in all the scenarios, they either want to take over or they think that humans are going to harm them and so they preemptively strike. There's a debate as to whether we're going to get strong AI or not, but a key, at least right now, is we aren't building robotic systems that have a will to survive. We're actually building them to go out and get killed. Doesn't mean it won't change, but that's what we're doing right now. Um, another aspect is, of course, you know, as sophisticated as something like a Global Hawk um, drone is, it still needs us. So it can take off on its own, it can land on its own, it can carry out its mission on its own, but it still needs us to fuel it, repair it, even program it where to go. The kill switch part of it, I kind of worried if you know an entire generation that grew up on Terminator didn't build in some kind of fail-safe controls. Uh, if we don't, then we almost maybe deserve it. You don't get to a super intelligent robot without first having an intelligent robot, without first having a semi-intelligent robot, without first having a kind of dumb robot. And we're right now, as amazing as these things are, we're at the dumb robot stage. So, you know, one of the hopes of the book is to basically get people talking about all these different scenarios so we can't plead ignorance um, later on. Right now, we have warbots, and uh, I'm guessing most of our enemies don't, but uh, that surely won't last forever. In what ways might uh, robots be used against us in the future? There is this assumption that um, the U.S. is ahead and that we'll always stay ahead, and it's just not going to be the case. You know, this ain't the Rumsfeld era anymore. There's 43 countries other than the U.S. that are building, buying, and using military robotics. And they range from countries like Great Britain and Israel to countries like Russia, Iran, China, Belarus. And so what you have playing out is... Basically, 
you know, a lot like what played out in the computer industry or the video game industry. Companies like Commodore or Atari were the leaders, but just because you're ahead at the start doesn't mean that you're always going to be ahead. There's another aspect of this, which is the open source warfare phenomena. It's a lot like what's happened in open source software and that the technologies are not ones that only states can use. Non-state actors can use them. Anyone can you know, build, buy, use, hack them, do it yourself, etc. A lot like what's played out with software. And so the stories in the book that illustrate this I think are fascinating. One is about a group of college kids at Swarthmore who wanted to do something to stop the genocide in Darfur. They ended up holding a fundraiser and then they took the money and entered into negotiations with a group of mercenaries to lease drones to fly over Sudan. Um, darker examples, uh, the war between Israel and Hezbollah was the first war in which both sides flew drones against each other. But notice that one side was a formal military, the other was sort of a paramilitary cross with a terrorist group. One of the scarier quotes in the book I, I personally found was an interview I did with a DARPA scientist who said, you know, look, if you gave me $50,000, I could shut down Manhattan right now. Uh, on a lighter note, I guess, uh, <laughs> apparently there's an anecdote mentioned in, in the book about a robot weapon locking onto the exhaust fan of a porta potty. Can you explain what that is? Um, what, what that's all about is uh, what um, one robots company executive described as oops moments with your robot. And um, yeah, there was one during a test where basically it was supposed to lock on to um, helicopters. Instead, it got confused and thought that the spinning fan in a porta potty was the target. Hmm. To a more tragic example, in South Africa, just about a year and a half ago, an anti-aircraft cannon had a, quote, software glitch during a training exercise. It was supposed to fire into the sky. Instead, it leveled, and then it started firing in a circle. It killed nine soldiers before it ran out of ammunition. It was the scene from RoboCop playing out in reality. To me, the question is also, how would you investigate these instances? What system of law would you turn to for accountability? The challenge right now is, you know, the laws really haven't kept up with all of this. I went to Human Rights Watch to ask them about, you know, what system of law would you turn to in trying to figure out who to hold accountable, for example, when a predator drone strike goes awry. And the two leaders in the organization got in this argument in front of me. One of them said, well, we turn to the Geneva Conventions, of course. And the other one said, you know, Geneva Conventions, I mean, those things are from the late 1940s. How would you apply it to this 21st century technology? The system of law that we need to turn to is the Star Trek Prime Directive. Now, that's great in a certain way. You know, I love that Star Trek's having this, you know, wonderful influence on the world, but we can't call Captain Kirk up as an expert witness. I mean, we've got to figure out how to update our laws. But also, one of the big challenges is figuring out how to deal with um, situations where the person operating the, the machine may be 7,000 miles away, like with Predator drones. But also, it's not just the physical change in the, in the location of decision. It may be the time change. That is, the reason the system went awry may actually be because two years ago, a scientist made the wrong decision, designed something they shouldn't, or maybe they made a mistake and they put a zero where they should have put a one in the software language. And so I argue that you can't just blame the soldier operating the system if it doesn't work. When you brought up RoboCop, that made me wonder, uh, you know, you're, you're referring to the example in the movie where the ED-209 robot sort of goes berserk and, and kills all the uh, executives. But, uh, you know, it's portrayed as the antagonist in that storyline, whereas RoboCop is the good guy. Now, that makes me wonder, is the future of robotic science purely in the hardware-software realm, or is it possibly in the hardware, software, and wetware realm, as in the case of RoboCop himself? Robotics are not just little machines that operate outside, you know, a la R2-D2 or whatever. They're also a technology that we're starting to put inside us. Um, one of the more heartwarming stories uh, in the book is about the more than 400 American soldiers who unfortunately have lost um, arms or legs due to these roadside bombs, but they've survived. And using robotic prosthetics, 
they've had their arms or legs replaced. Replaced not just such that they can go on leading their lives, but literally they've gone back to their combat units to serve again. And the head of the program describes it as the Luke Skywalker effect. If you remember in Empire Strikes Back, you know, Luke gets his hand cut off by a lightsaber. And then at the end of the movie, we see Luke with a robotic hand. That was science fiction when I was growing up. For 400 American soldiers, that is their reality already. Now, that's an amazing story, but we don't stop at replacement. And so we're seeing a huge amount of research, not into replacing what is lost, but make better. An interesting example is earlier this year, the British Army had a uh, one of their special operations soldiers, it was revealed, had had uh, laser eye surgery. For him, it wasn't so that he went from contact lens to being able to see normal. It allowed him to be able to see at night more than 400 meters. Hmm. He had night vision. When science fiction fans hear the word robot, we tend to think of androids. Uh, when do you think we can expect to see real human-shaped robots walking among us? It would be a shame if we, you know, were so arrogant to think that the best possible form is our form. I mean, we actually aren't all that efficient in a lot of different ways. I mean, I remember one roboticist saying, you know, we can't see out the back of our head. You know, what's with that? Uh, who would ever design something like that? Or, you know, is it really uh, an elbow that can't flex in both directions that's the best? When I see movies like, you know, the Terminator movies, I'm kind of like, that's kind of lame. That That's what they ended up with, really? Hopefully, we'll, we'll move past that kind of arrogance, and we're starting to see that. I mean, you, you see robotics that are inspired by biology, uh, then ones that are hybrids, and then even ones that are morphing, um, that literally can take any form. In terms of the humanoid development right now, we've got ones that are incredibly lifelike, but not all that mobile. So one of the ones I talk about in the book is Actroid. Basically, she's modeled after a, a very sexy Japanese newscaster, and she is incredibly lifelike. Uh, in the picture in the book, if you look at it without knowing, you would say, oh, that's a person. But she's not you know, able to, to run or leap. She is able, though, for example, to communicate with you with 2,000 different phrases in four different languages. On the other side, we've seen research into um, legged robots uh, that can walk, like Boston Dynamics. A lot of people are familiar with Big Dog that looks like a robotic mule, and it's you know basically able to walk like a mule. Uh, they've got a new version that's basically designed with two legs and is able to walk around. But um, this is one of the things I think is sort of interesting moving forward is, you know, what is the, the best form? On one hand, we can see the appeal of making them humanoid. It'll be more acceptable for us to deal with them. And also the way that we've changed the world with our buildings and the like has been designed around us. But on the other hand, we have to realize that we may not be the best of all possible forms out there. So in your TED Talk, you said something that really struck me. You said the kinds of things that we used to only talk about at science fiction conventions like Comic-Con have to be talked about in the halls of power and places like the Pentagon. Why does it seem like those in power never seem to think beyond the next election or the next uh, quarterly report? And how can we get more future-oriented science fiction thinking into leadership? You've hit on a, a great point, and it's that question is to, in a certain way, of why is it that sci-fi does a better job of predicting than government does often? The British Admiralty reacted to uh, a story that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in 1914 about using the once science fiction-like technology of submarines in a blockade of Great Britain. And the British Admiralty said, that is so absurd, they went public to mock Arthur Conan Doyle for talking about that for writing what we would view as science fiction. And, of course, just a couple months later, the Germans used submarines for a blockade of Great Britain. And this continues throughout history. And, and I even had this experience during the book tour for this book, where one Pentagon official basically talked about virtual worlds, things like Second Life, as being something that we would one day be able to have 20 years from now. He didn't even know it we had such a thing as Second Life right now, that the internet could be turned into something three-dimensional. Couldn't even conceive of it. And I think the time frame that people are looking at, typically in government, they're reacting to the latest headlines, and they're often not engaged with technologic change. And let's be honest, they're usually kind of a generation behind by the time they reach the levels to make decisions. 
you know, this was one of the, the things that I found most sort of fascinating during the research for the book was not just interviewing the scientists, but also interviewing the science fiction authors about where do you see this all headed? And I got to interview, you know, folks from Greg Bear to, you know, visit to the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame. But um, one of the other parts that I found kind of funny was that some of these science fiction authors are harder to track down than it was to get folks in the policy world or beyond. It was hmm. easier for me to get an interview with an insurgent <laughs> than it was, for example, to track down Orson Scott Card. Um, <laughs> but, you know, unfortunately, I was able to interview both of them. Uh, and who knows, maybe the Orson Scott Card one was more dangerous. But uh, <laughs> the, the point here is this is that, you know, it, it was this amazing experience and the insight that they bring. That chapter ends with a quote from Donna Shirley, who was the NASA scientist turned director of the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame in Seattle. And she had this great point where she said, science fiction doesn't tell you how to build the bomb. It tells you if you build the bomb, you might also get Dr. Strangelove. P.W. Singer, thank you so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. It's been great. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. And that was our interview. Uh, thanks again so much to P.W. Singer for joining us on the show. I mean, it was just a fantastic interview. I mean, there's so much to talk about. Um, I think what we're going to do is try to just limit the conversation to talking about some of the science fiction works uh, that were mentioned during the interview. And maybe for people uh, who haven't who aren't familiar with all of them, you know, just sort of bring you up to speed, make sure that we're not, you know, leaving anyone out of the discussion. Uh, so we'll, you know, we'll talk about some of these just major science fiction books uh, that everyone should know, uh, you know, like like Ender's Game and, and iRobot. And then in the future, when we talk about them, you know, we won't have to uh, explain what they are. And uh, if you skip any shows, you might miss an, an explanation. And burn but, in hell. <laughs> but yeah, it'll just be your fault for skipping any of our shows. So, uh, I mean, the first uh, work that Peter mentioned was iRobot by Isaac Asimov. Uh, he mentioned that there's this iRobot company that's actually building some of these uh, military robots. See, iRobot is a short story collection uh, collecting, I mean, a lot of really his, his very earliest writings. So let's see, I actually have the quote here. So Asimov had become kind of irritated by the way robots had been depicted in, in science fiction. I mean, when you think about creating artificial people. I mean, going back to, to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and then the first work to use the word robot was Carl uh, Chopik's uh, play R.U.R., uh, which stood for Rossum's Universal Robots, which was about a, a robot uprising. Uh, robots um, just didn't have a very good uh, <laughs> image. So I have a quote from Asimov about this. He says, it became very common in the 1920s and 1930s to picture robots as dangerous devices that invariably destroy their creators. The moral was pointed out over and over again that there are some things man was not meant to know. Even as a youngster, though, I could not bring myself to believe that if knowledge presented danger, the solution was ignorance. To me, it always seemed that the solution had to be wisdom. You did not refuse to look at danger. Rather, you learned how to handle it safely. After all, this has been the human challenge since a certain group of primates became human in the first place. Any technological advance can be dangerous. Fire was dangerous from the start, and so uh, even more so with speech. And both are still dangerous to this day, but human beings would not be human without them. This quote, for me, really sums up a big part of the philosophy of sort of classic golden age science fiction, this uh, sort of positive view toward reason and technology and not being naive about the dangers of, of technology, but not being hysterical uh, or, or paranoid about them either iRobot is obviously a classic in science fiction in terms of uh, its exploration of robotics and uh, lays out Isaac Asimov's uh, you know three rules of robotics, um, which are one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey any orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Three. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. You know, Asimov lays out these rules in, in iRobot and um, sort of tells these uh, various stories about robots that are sort of loosely tied together by uh, one character named Susan Calvin, who's a sort of doctor of uh, oh, new of, science well, of, of, robotics. of robotics, which was actually yeah. a word that Asimov invented in right. the stories. There's actually one particular story I wanted to talk about from iRobot that sort of sticks in my mind the most is called Liar, 
you know, the, the robots are kind of rolling off of the assembly line and they discover that one of these robots can read minds. And so they call in a bunch of roboticists to try to figure out what's happened. And one of them, one of the scientists is, is Dr. Susan Calvin. And so uh, as they're trying to figure out how this robot is able to read minds, the robot reveals to Dr. Calvin that uh, one of the other scientists on the team, whom she's secretly in love with, is, is in love with her too. But then it turns out that he's not actually in love with her and uh, that the robot has lied to her and that he's done this because he's, he can read her mind and knows her feelings. And the first law prevents him from doing anything that would cause harm to a human being. And so he hmm. thinks that telling her the truth is going to cause harm to her. And so that's why he's lying to her. He's, he's, he's sort of told everybody what they want to hear and, and in the end faced uh, with all these different angry people, each demanding the truth from him, the robot's brain kind of fries itself because uh, he can't not harm somebody in this situation. And so, I mean, I think this it's just a, a really interesting story and I think shows how the three laws of robotics are just one of the all-time great plot devices. But it also sort of shows how it sort of gets at how unworkable they seem to be in, in real life. I mean, reading minds isn't the only way a person or a robot could have for deciding what might hurt somebody, right? Is a robot who's just good at recognizing somebody's facial expressions, is that kind of robot also obligated to tell you what you want to hear? And what is harm anyway? And how can you <laughs> exist in the world without harming anybody? You know, we, we unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to ask uh, P.W. Singer about this, but he wrote an article called Why Asimov's Three Laws Are Total BS. I, I think what he was getting at with that is that the three laws don't seem to be really guiding people in the real world in terms of making robots that he says you know the three laws say you know don't kill follow orders and protect yourself whereas we're building robots to kill to die and to only follow the orders of the people who made them and, and not follow the orders of, of anybody else i mean uh, robocop 2 i think actually not not a great movie or anything but they kind of uh, address some of the issues with the three laws of robotics because uh while robocop doesn't actually have the three laws of robotics per se as his guiding uh, principles, um, he does have uh, a list of directives that he can't violate. And in the first RoboCop, he has like three, I think, which is probably, you know, a callback to Asimov. While yeah. not using his rules, they, you know, wanted to have three rules. I bet I could even come up with them. Well, I know the last one, serve the public trust, right? Yeah, or serve the public trust, say that? protect the innocent, and uphold the law. Right, right. right. And then there's the secret one not to... Right. Um, no spoilers! Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so in RoboCop 2, though, they uh, the community sort of gets up in arms about RoboCop being doing this or that, and then so they decide that they're going to reprogram him, and they add, like, just a huge number of laws into his programming, <laughs> and it sort of makes him unable to function properly as a police officer. And so, I mean, I think that's part of what Asimov was doing, was trying to keep it simple so that a robot would still be able to function. But then also, he was leaving himself a lot of room to play with in terms of what kind of plots he can tell with these rules. I mean, I think one of the reasons why, prior to him coming up with these, that he saw this pattern of writers using robots as antagonists and rising up against their creators is that it's very difficult to come up with conflict, I think, in a robot story if it's actually going to be about robots and they don't end up you know, turning on us or, or whatever, unless you have some sort of framework in place like this where you know he can sort of play with the logic of the robots and and you know create conflict that way to, to you know find ways to subvert the laws or find ways in which the laws fail you know to sort of create conflict that way instead of through actual violence he pioneered that in science fiction but then he also kind of screwed a lot of science fiction writers to come uh because it's like okay well what do we have left now it's like well we're either rewriting what they wrote back in the 20s and 30s before asimov or we're or we're, we're going to rewrite Asimov himself. So, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges that writers have today writing about robots. But, I mean, I think certainly if, you know, people were to read something like, like Singer's book, I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. So um, I, I, could, I could see a whole, you know, new generation of SF writers coming up with uh, fresh takes on robotics, after, you know, after seeing what we're actually doing today. See, another uh, book that P.W. Singer mentioned was Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. I read Starship Troopers when I was about 12 years old, so, so my memories of it are, are a little vague and, and have been, uh, I'm afraid, corrupted by the, the terrible movie. Well, I, I would dispute that it's a terrible movie. It's, uh, it's not a faithful adaptation of the book. It sort of subverts the message of the book, but um, I don't know. It's, like, it's kind of awesome in a, in a horrifying way. Like, I don't know. I mean, well, I, you... know I, 
I know I shouldn't like it, but I actually really like it. I, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I sort of have some sort of affection for Paul Verhoeven's just incredible excesses in filmmaking. Like Robocop is another Verhoeven film that I, I actually love. And, um, and Starship Troopers, I, I know a lot of people hate it, but like, I don't know. I just, I really like it. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, um, a fascist, uh, recruitment film. And the way it's portrayed. And I mean, I just love the way it sort of it subverts the idea of the book because it's making Heinlein's ideas satire, which he did not intend. Yeah, I mean, in order to enjoy it, you have to view it as a parody of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And at that level, it is it, it's kind of fun. But, you know, for, for those of us who, you know, hmm. were, were looking for a, like a good science fiction movie, you know, we were really disappointed when it when it came out. But I mean, the story basically is that Earth is at war with insectoid aliens. And uh, in the book, anyway, the hero is a member of a, a military unit called the Mobile Infantry, and so they're you know they're infantry soldiers, but they have these suits that allow them to leap really high and deploy tactical nukes and and stuff like that. And that's actually uh, coming true too. Um, there's this YouTube video of this Sarcos suit. It's a sort of exoskeleton that you can strap yourself into, and it allows you to lift a lot of weight and. Uh, you know, the sort of the head of the company is talking about in the future how you'll be able to get out of the suit and then tell the suit what to do. And then the suit will become kind of a robot and it'll run around and do stuff on, on its own and then come back and you can get back into it. And it sounds really cool. It reminds me kind of of the um, Ian M. Banks story, uh, Descendant. Is that the one where there's a there's a guy and he's uh, he's got a suit and the suit is solar powered and he's trying to get back to base. And uh, so when the sun is up, the suit does all the walking. He sleeps, and then at night, he wakes up and, and does the walking while the suit has no power. That's a story I really enjoy. So it's no, that's a great story. I mean, there's a there's a long tradition in science fiction of telling stories about this sort of powered armor individuals. Like, uh, there's a there's a a great book that most teenage boys read uh, when they're first getting into science fiction called Armor by John Stakely. I actually just reread it recently because I, I uh, the audiobook version of it just came out, and so I listened to it. Um, you know, it didn't hold up to my younger memory of reading it but uh you know it's it's actually a really fun book uh but it's a you know that's what it's about it's about a soldier who who wears this sort of powered armor and it's sort of uh it's very reminiscent of ian banks ian banks's story because uh there is an aspect of the armor having sort of an existence beyond the uh the soldier himself but you know as far as uh, the starship troopers goes like uh that I'll, i will say that's one thing i was definitely disappointed in with the movie is that in the movie you know they're basically wearing like helmet a helmet and like football gear it's like you know what where's their armor it's like i want to see the powered armor on screen you know you know starship troopers is kind of infamous in a lot of quarters because uh of the suggestion that only military veterans should be allowed to vote and that's kind of one of the things that that the movie kind of pokes fun at and and, and depicts the the federal service you know mm-hmm. as a in, in this really overtly authoritarian way um and you know another book that um, P.W. Singer mentioned it's it's taken to be kind of a, a response to Starship Troopers is Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. So yes, so in The Forever War, um, you know Joe Haldeman was a, a combat veteran in Vietnam, and and so the the book is sort of seen as being a kind of science fiction imagining, a uh, sort of uh, or allegory of his experience in the Vietnam War, where the soldiers come home and and home seems alien. And so in, in the book, uh, the, these soldiers are, are sent off to fight these aliens, and nobody really knows why they're fighting, and uh, and, and the war seems kind of uh, without purpose. And they're sent through these collapsar wormhole-type things so that they're traveling faster than the speed of light. And because of relativity, each time they return home from a campaign, you know, it's it's been just a short time for them, but, but decades or, you know, have passed back on Earth. And so each time they return home, Earth is jumped forward in effect into the future and so the first time they come back it's kind of a a mad max style thing where law and order is breaking down and you know one time um they come back and the whole population has sort of been engineered to be homosexuals as a means of trying to control overpopulation and and they eventually come back and the whole planet is just every everyone is a, a clone of the same person and there's just one person <laughs> on the earth and uh, it's just a, it's just a really cool book the the books that P.W. Singer mentioned are all sort of the, the classics of, of military science fiction, kind of, and, and sort of the next in that uh, chain that he mentioned was Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which is, again, uh, like in Starship Troopers, Earth is at war with uh, insect aliens. And so they're training their next generation of commanders, of military commanders, 
Um, so they're selecting them when they're children and taking them to this school in orbit called Battle School, where they do kind of laser tag games in zero gravity to try to learn how to think in, in 3D, you know, with, without, without gravity. Um, and then the people who do the best in those games are taken to command school, where they play sort of video games to command the armies. Sort of like piloting the drones that uh, Singer was talking about. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of ways in which Ender's Game, you know, which is a book that came out in, in 1984 or so, prefigures uh, things that have actually happened, like like these drones. And also uh, <laughs> uh, in the book, Card imagines the internet and, you know, having different sock puppets and building online followings and blogs and, and things like that. Unfortunately, there's still no uh, zero gravity uh, laser tag. When it does happen, remember that the enemy's gate is down. <laughs> yeah. See, and then uh, another book that uh, P.W. Singer mentioned was uh, Old Man's War by John Scalzi. Another kind of response to Heinlein. Yeah, yeah, I guess this is really uh, sort of modeled after the Heinlein, the Heinlein juveniles, or what we would call today YA novels, of which, you know, Starship Troopers was originally intended to be one, um, but the publisher thought it was too violent, I guess, and it was actually published as an adult um, novel, but he rewrote it as a juvenile. Um, and so in, in Old Man's War, kind of the idea is that, you know, older people have more experience and are wiser and um, make better judgments, but younger people have better health and reflexes and, and energy and, you know, sharper concentration and things. So really the ideal soldier would be if you could take an old person and give them a, a new young body. You know, the bodies that they're put into are like super soldier bodies. You know, they're not just, uh, you know, not just regular humans. They're super powered. If they're, they're green, you know, their skin is green so that they can sort of absorb sunlight and process energy and all that kind of stuff. So sort of the uh, engineered to the nth degree. So then I guess moving on to some of the movies, I mean, we talked about RoboCop a little bit, um, but in terms of robot uprisings, what comes to mind, first of all, is Terminator and the Matrix. Terminator, basically, there's a robot, you know, in the future, the robots rise up and humans are fighting for survival. And so the robots send a machine back through time disguised as a human being to assassinate the leader of the human resistance, or to actually to assassinate his mother uh, initially before, uh, before the leader can be born to win the war. Um, and then in the Matrix, uh, there's a sort of normal guy, and he realizes or discovers that the world around him is a sort of virtual reality illusion, and that he's actually living, he's actually plugged into a pod in a future uh, run by malevolent machines, and that he can do cool kung fu once he, once he realizes that uh, the world he sees is just an illusion. Most people kind of like the Matrix, at least the first one. I guess John's not really one of them. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I, I kind of hated it. <laughs> but uh, one thing that everyone I've talked to among science fiction writers seems to hate is the explanation for why the machines are uh, have created the Matrix. And so supposedly, uh, you know, in the, in the future, humanity blasted the sky so that the machines who are solar powered wouldn't have any power. And so the machines have taken all these human bodies and plugged them into this big, you know, network to draw power from them. And this drives a lot of the more science-oriented people nuts because it, it just seems to violate thermodynamics and how can you run a human body and get more energy out of it than you're putting into it. And uh, there's this line in the movie where, where they, they sort of do some hand-waving and say, well, combined with a form of fusion, and then you're kind of like, well, wait, if they have the fusion, why don't they just use the fusion? What do you need the, the people for? And, and I don't actually hate this thing as much as most people seem to. Because it does make a kind of metaphorical sense, you know, in the in the the character's normal life, society and rules and corporations and stuff are all sucking the life out of him, and then he wakes up and and discovers that the that that's literally true, but it doesn't make any any scientific sense. I could I could expand on why I kind of hated the movie, but it would entail spoilers, so. I don't want to go into that, but, uh, you know, I will say that I did love the sort of visual aspects of it. Like everyone else did the, the fancy Kung Fu and all that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh the plot problems and the science problems are what, uh, bugged me about it and, uh, sort of ruined it for me. Also, I guess, because I was so disappointed because it, it was so close, you know, it's like, that's part of it. It's like when a movie comes really close to being awesome, but then like has like a few, what I what to me were critical flaws that makes it even more disappointing to me when uh when when you you know when it falls just that short 
but I'm a harsh critic, as you've noted. You've noted before uh, on Netflix. Uh, Dave and I are Netflix <laughs> friends, and uh, if if one were to look at our ratings side by side, like they're all about the same, except that mine are like what is it, one star or two stars two, lower two than stars, yours? Yeah. Two stars lower than yours. So <laughs> yeah, they follow the same curve, but uh, you know, I'll give something five stars that he gives three stars to. I guess you know I, I was going to mention I just read this. Uh, Mark, we were you know we uh, we interviewed Chet Falasek uh, a few episodes back, and um, you know Mark, we were talking about Mark Laidlaw, who write who wrote uh, for Half Life for Valve, and I just actually read a short story by him um, in which uh, they take soldiers. You know they need soldiers to be sentries, and so they kind of take them and plug them into these wheelchairs, and so they're just kind of stuck staring at whatever they're supposed to be watching, and they can't move, and they're they're not really awake. And then when they see something that alerts them that they come awake and it's it's kind of a cool uh it's a cool premise but when i was listening to to pw singer talk you know it, it really it really did make you think that you know a robot is 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 really what you would want to use for this kind of job you know that a robot would just wait and wait and wait and not get bored and not have to be fed and all this stuff it was kind of reminding me of in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy there's this robot marvin and uh the characters are blasted billions of years into the future and, and end up at the very end of the universe uh, where there's a restaurant where you can watch the end of the universe happening. And it turns out that the robot is there and they say, Marvin, you know, how did you, how did you get here? And he's like, Oh, I've just been waiting for you for the last, uh, last few billion years. And he's, he's sort of a depressed robot. And he says, you know, the, the first billion years, they were the worst. The second billion, they were the worst too. After that, I went into a bit of a decline. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just you know you know the robot will uh will just do some of these things but you know you were talking about robocop and uh you know i just <laughs> i just rewatched robocop not all that long ago you know they just released it on blu-ray and our, our friend rob bland uh, got a copy of it he he mentioned that uh one of the the bonus features was that they had reinserted reinserted 15 minutes of gore back into the movie and mm -hmm. you're kind of thinking, wow, if there's anything RoboCop needed, it was more gore. <laughs> and and the gore is, is totally over the top. I mean, there's a scene where, you know, the character who becomes RoboCop is uh, is murdered. And uh, this whole gang of criminals is just shooting him. And it seems like it just goes on forever. And you're watching this, especially in this the new version. And you're like, how many arms does this guy have? It seems like I've watched <laughs> like eight of them get blown off already. But I, I, I do think RoboCop stands up really well, sort of uh, as a, as a satire. Um, it was really kind of striking for me to contemplate how much of my attitude toward corporations was, uh, <laughs> you know, shaped as a kid by, by Robocop and, and other science fiction movies in which the corporations are always evil. You know, I, uh, I was watching actually the, the DVD commentary for Aliens and the screenwriter says, he says, you know, when I wrote this movie, I didn't really know anything about corporations. I just imagined them as pure evil. And that's how I wrote them. And he says, and now I've, you know, I've worked for corporations for 20 years and I know a lot more about them. And I still think they're pure evil. <laughs> you know, um, it was interesting, actually, uh, doing doing research for this show. I, I saw that uh, James Cameron told all the actors who played space marines in Aliens to read Starship Troopers before the shooting to sort of prepare for their uh, prepare for their parts. Uh, another thing, actually, with the, the Starship Troopers movie is that it was actually in pre-production as an unrelated science fiction movie called Bug Hunt at Outpost huh. 7 or something like that, Outpost 9. And they actually, you know, optioned the book and just sort of stuck elements from it into mm. it after it was already in pre-production. And that's why it, uh, it doesn't follow the book all that closely. That's interesting because uh, iRobot, the iRobot movie, that the same thing happened with that. Which is why the iRobot movie has nothing to do at all. I mean, Starship Troopers at least pretty much resembles the book, but you know, iRobot doesn't resemble it at all. Um, and you know, it's because, well, you know, iRobot the book is not an action movie. It's not an action plot in there. It's I mean, it's like it's a couple short stories. But actually, I was gonna say also, um, you know, regarding RoboCop holding up very well, you know, even though it's what it came out in 1989. Uh, iRobot, the book, which came out like in the 50s or something, um, does not actually hold up that well. I mean, a couple of the stories in there still read pretty good, but most of them are, you know, you have to give them a lot of leeway um, and understand, you know, that they were written during a sort of more innocent time in uh, in uh, America. They The characters sort of say silly things and uh, like exclaim phrases like jump in Jupiter and sizzle in Saturn. I'm like, what? Well, and I mean, but, I, and I mean, Asimov was, you know, I think a teenager 
uh, or in his early 20s when he wrote many of those stories. And so, you know, it, it was a completely different time where editors were so uh, desperate for material that if you if you were kind of a bright teenager who liked science fiction, they would, you know, you could, you could pop by the, uh, the editorial offices and they would talk with you about, uh, <laughs> you know, what kind of stories they would like to see. Um, so actually, I mean... It seems like uh, uh, Asimov's editor, John Campbell, probably deserves at least as much credit for formulating the three laws and, you know, like he, uh, for helping Asimov formulate um, his um, foundation stories and things like that. Yeah, I mean, if you, um, if you ignore the character, the characterization and the dialogue and you just pay attention to the plot, they probably hold up okay. That was what was always most interesting about them. And I think that's all Asimov really cared about in those stories is, uh, you know, it's, they're logic puzzles. You know, he laid out the laws and then he set out, the, he, you know, he created a situation in order to sort of unravel this logic puzzle. And in that way, they really still hold up very well. But, you know, like I said, you know, you kind of have to forgive the characterization and dialogue in many places. Yeah, but I mean, so what with Asimov, I mean, really what you're getting, you know, is is this this worldview, this sort of logical, future oriented uh, worldview that, that, as, that, as I said, is it seems to me just sort of central to the the philosophy of of a certain kind of science fiction and it seems to me just really different than than a lot of other like i know you like uh, michael crichton it seems like he's almost the uh, the opposite right well i, I mean you know i i grew i i sort of came up with michael crichton I, I sort of soured on him a bit i mean i i i still uh sort of remember several of his books fondly like jurassic park and sphere and some of the other ones but um at some point i came to realize how like in every michael crichton story science is actually the bad guy and that's sort of antithetical to what science fiction is all about. And uh, so, I mean, that sort of um, made me like his books less. And, and you know, you know, he, he sort of wrote a bunch of other bad books in, in more recent years. And so I sort of soured on them for that reason as well. But, yeah, I mean, it makes it certainly makes them less enjoyable to me when I stop to think that, you know, his books are actually doing harm to the sort of worldview that I would uh, want to see, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I, I want science to be a force of good and, and be interesting to people. And I want people to develop science and not be afraid of engineering dinosaurs that will uh, run rampant and eat everyone on their Island. It's not, I don't think it's a good thing when science is depicted constantly as a bad guy. I mean, that happens enough in movies. I, I never understood when I was younger, why Crichton was not really considered science fiction. And I mean, I'm sure it was more than that, but I mean, that's as good a reason as any to say why this is not science fiction, whereas, you know, say Robert J. Sawyer is science fiction. I mean, because those two write sort of a very similar type of book, except that in a Sawyer book, uh, you know, the science is going to be much more of, uh, you know, either good or neutral force, not, you know, necessarily a bad guy. It, it'll it'll sort of be the engine that drives the plot, but not the malevolent force that they that it is in a Crichton novel. Yeah, well, I mean, like in a techno thriller, there's this this sort of artificial thing where some new technology has been invented, and if you can just put it back in the bottle, everything will be fine. And of course, you know, the world doesn't work that way. Once something's been invented, it's going to be invented again, and it's going to become ubiquitous, and you have to learn how to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know I've read some books like that as well. Like, um, there's one called... Uh... Medusa's Child, I think, by John Nance. Uh, John Nance was like a airline pilot or something like that, and he wrote a book called Pandora's Clock, which I liked, and then went on to read this other one. But I remember in the Medusa one, um, it's exactly like you're describing. It's like, you know, there's this one new technological device. It's some sort of electromagnetic pulse device, like basically an EMP bomb, and and that's what the whole that's what drives the whole plot is, you know, getting that back in the bottle. And in uh, a lot of these, is, a lot yeah. of this sort of books, it doesn't really matter what the technology is. It's it's sort of what um, uh, Hitchcock called a MacGuffin, right? It's just a plot mm -hmm. device, and you know, it's 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 a different technology from book to book, but it plays the same role in the plot. It's it's a secret that has to be destroyed, and that corporations are willing to chase people around for. And uh, it doesn't the, the book never actually comes to terms with the implications of the the technology itself. Yeah, and I mean that's uh, that that certainly shows up in in science fiction from time to time. Like if uh, you know if you're an editor as I am and you read stories, you know, just in the slot pile, uh, I think that's one of the things that a lot of younger writers don't actually stop to consider that uh, they don't necessarily put a, a a piece of technology or an advance or whatever. They don't necessarily put it in the plot as a MacGuffin, but what they don't stop to realize is that oh well, what I've done here is actually no better than a MacGuffin. It's like it's not really doesn't really matter what I, I I could take this out and put anything else in here and it wouldn't matter. Well, I hope all the aspiring writers out there are, uh, are listening to, 
our words of wisdom. Take notes. <laughs> and uh, we're just about out of time now, so I think that's going to be our show. And be sure to join us next week when we interview writer Marjorie Liu, author of the best-selling novels in the Dirk and Steel series and the Hunter Kiss series. Uh, she's also a writer for NYX, um, the Marvel comic, and uh, Dark Wolverine. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.